Welcome to the Bioinformatics CRO podcast. I am Grace Ratley, the editor of the podcast, and this week we're doing something a little bit different. Today, I'm going to be talking with our usual host, Grant Belgard. Grant, can you introduce yourself, please? Hi, I'm Grant. I'm a computational biologist and uh, founder of the Bioinformatics CRO. I started the company almost three years ago now. Yeah, I also know you work a little bit with BitBio. Is that something we can talk about? Absolutely. Cool, cool. Yeah, so what's your role at BitBio? What does BitBio do? Sure, so BitBio differentiates cells from pluripotent stem cells. Uh, So I'm head of bioinformatics there and on an interim basis, uh, head of data management and IT. So what kind of cells do you guys differentiate? Have you had any success? I haven't really followed much of it. Yeah, so we have some some products on the market. If you go to bit.bio, you can check those out. There are also uh, a number of products uh, in beta. Very cool. Yeah, so moving on to the Bioinformatics CRO, which is the namesake of this podcast. So tell us a little bit about what the Bioinformatics CRO does. The Bioinformatics CRO provides computational biology services for small to mid-sized biotechs, academics, and also big pharma companies. Basically, we allow clients to work with bioinformaticians with specialized expertise that they may not have in-house, and also to tap into a broader pool of computational biologists when they simply don't have the resources in-house to successfully tackle projects or to complete those projects in the timelines needed. So the Bioinformatics CRO is an all-remote company. We started out all-remote, but COVID has kind of shifted things a little bit. Have you noticed any sort of change in the workflow as a result of COVID, or has your workflow mostly stayed the same? So things haven't really changed for us that much, but we have seen changes in the perception uh, from clients in, in some cases. When we started the company, remote work was still somewhat of an aberration in the industry. Some clients, frankly, didn't understand it. And now everyone does. I mean, I I had been working remotely most of my career well before I I founded the company. And so I knew that it worked very well for bioinformatics. But, you know, I had to kind of (laughs) convince the rest of the world of that. And COVID, although it's been net (laughs) extremely negative, has accelerated some positive trends. And and I do think remote work is one of those. Fully distributed companies have gotten easier to run in, in recent years. Slack is wonderful. Zoom is wonderful. There are platforms now such as dealremote.com and OysterHR that allow, uh, that facilitate working with people regardless of geography. There are also programs such as Estonian e-residency that allow people to form companies and operate companies regardless of of where they live. And I I think in the long run, we're going to see very large impacts in the industry. Most people in biomedical research don't work where they grew up. About a third of biotech activity in the U.S. is in greater Boston. About a third of that is in the San Francisco Bay Area and about a third of that elsewhere in the U.S. And you see similar patterns of extreme concentration elsewhere in the world. And that extreme concentration is largely driven by network effects. Network 
effects are very strong in biotech. It can be challenging to find seasoned executives. So it's easier to start and grow a company in an area where there's a lot more activity in the industry. Geographic proximity promotes serendipity, but the circumstances for serendipitous encounters can be engineered even in an all remote world, right? So there are programs such as Lunch Club and Growth Club, and uh, many of the local and state biotech trade associations that used to have in-person meetings are now having Zoom meetings. The networking interactions that, that happen there are obviously different from those that, that happen in person, but really, I'm not sure that they're less efficient overall in terms of the, the, the time that people put into less spontaneous interactions. I think we're moving slowly as an industry to a world where a much greater proportion of people not only work from home, but work some distance from where their company may be headquartered. And their company may well be headquartered in a room in someone's house. I think it won't happen immediately, in part because when people have children who are in middle school or high school and they've really put down roots in, in say, greater Boston or something like this, of course, many of those people are not going to want to move. And, and certainly there are many advantages to, to living in those hubs. But I do think the greatest hub of the future will be the internet and people who essentially see their professional lives lived out online. And th this may sound weird for something like biotech, where you may think you need people at the bench. And certainly you do need a lot of people at the bench to bring a product to market. But they don't necessarily have to be people working for the company that brings the product to market. I think another trend that will continue to accelerate in coming years is networks of contract research organizations working with small, nimble, virtual biotech companies. And many people will not work for just one small virtual biotech company. They may work for a few. And I think networks will be more important than ever before. I think increasingly networks are going to supplant big companies in the space of innovation. Big companies have advantages. They reduce transaction costs. So if you are at a big pharma company and you want to access expertise in very different areas, you can do that. And you can do that without having to negotiate and sign contracts and so on. And that's great, but there are a lot of inefficiencies you have with large companies that are corrected to some extent with networks of virtual companies and CROs and so on. So you'll either have people paid to do marginal work in order to have them available for and on standby for more important urgent work, or you'll underhire and bottleneck progress. Either of those is a problem. And more importantly, there's been a lot of work done on how innovation is often stifled in larger companies. Disruptive innovation often requires a lot of work to create a product that is superior to whatever the, the current state of the art is. And it can be difficult within the context of larger organizations to have that sustained investment that's required to really bring forward new technologies. Looser networks 
also have an advantage in that it can be difficult for outsiders to an area to know who's competent and who's a blowhard. These repeated interactions where you know someone does great work, you work with them at one company, you work with them at a second company, you work with them at a third company, can really move things along. You certainly don't want to have Google be your port of call for finding all the expertise that's required to develop a drug. And so I think these distributed networks with distributed companies will become an increasingly important component of the global biotech landscape and that you'll see a lot more innovation coming out of these types of companies. And, and, and none of this is new. I mean, all these, these organizations exist and a lot's been said and written about them. But, but I do think we'll see a lot more of that. Yeah, I think those are all really great insights. I think that with the networks, there's a lot more buy-in when you're working in a small company. Everybody feels like they play a bigger role in driving the company forward. Well, and everyone does play an, uh, an yeah. incrementally much larger role. If it's a, if it's a team of five... Uh, you certainly have a much bigger impact on the company than a a, a company of 50,000. Yeah, I know working for the Bioinformatics Hero, I have done all kinds of crazy tasks um, that I never would have imagined doing. And I feel like maybe, I know one concern about working with all of these remote companies is the difficulty with finding that interpersonal connection because you're not going into the office every day and you're not seeing your coworkers every day. But for me, at least, I feel like more connected to the company because I am one of five, because there are fewer people. And we do communicate a lot because I have a lot of roles to play in the company. And so, I don't know, I feel like there's more of a commitment to the company, for me at least, and it is more connecting. And I think that's something that a lot of people don't think about when they're thinking about working remotely. Right. And, and I think as well, large companies are by nature a bit sociopathic. There's no human agency. Maybe I'm painting with too broad a brush, but uh, certainly with, with very small, closely held companies, there's, I think, much more of a, of a human element that, frankly, Fortune 500 companies can't ever have. Yeah, definitely. So as we move into this virtual world as a biotech industry, as, as people move remotely, technologies like Zoom have really come to the forefront and they've evolved a lot. Like now I can go to all my meetings as a cat <laughs> with the cat filter on. But what do you think are some really important tools or, or technology that'll make this transition easier for everyone? I think these days everyone is certainly familiar with Zoom and most people have probably tried their hand at something like Slack. One thing I think is really critical for all remote companies is to create opportunities for people to interact informally and sometimes to interact around topics that are completely unrelated to, to their work. Right? The water cooler type conversations that ordinarily happen in an, of in an office and that's because, you know, everyone's a person <laughs> and relationships are at the core of everything we do as humans. And if you have a poor relationship or non-existent relationship with, with someone, uh, or maybe an entirely transactional relationship, firstly, it's just a lot more unpleasant. 
as a, as a person. <laughs> Secondly, when things get difficult, and there are always periods in any company and in any project where sometimes things are hard. It, it makes it that much harder if you don't have real relationships with the other people who are you know, working through that with you. So there are tools such as icebreakers.video and so on that give people those, those opportunities. And even things like the random channel on Slack <laughs> give people an opportunity to interact informally, to share things that are funny, just to be people. Because I think it is easy by default without, you know, if you don't make an effort for all remote teams to become more transactional than they should be, right? So you have a meeting on a specific topic, you discuss that topic, the meeting's over, you know, you, you, you discuss projects and emails and things like this. Having all your interactions be like that is not, not healthy and not normal. So I think that kind of thing is often not explicitly addressed in traditional in-person companies to the extent that it needs to be in fully distributed companies where you can't have these spontaneous interactions occurring in the lunchroom because the lunchroom is your own dining room <laughs> at home. So one thing we're doing at BitBio that I think is pretty neat is a month where people are running or walking and basically recording that. And, and as a team seeing, you know, how far uh, everyone can get, you know, we're kind of most of the way from Cambridge, UK to Spain. Now, if you add up everyone's distance and, you know, it's both a way to promote uh, fitness and so on, but it's also kind of a neat thing for people to be able to do together at a time when people generally can't uh, as easily get together. Yeah, I think that kind of stuff is really cool. But yeah, I the the social technology is probably what's needed most. Social technology that brings smaller groups of people together, I think is, for me, that's what I would like to see. Yeah, so I know you've had a really interesting path to where you are right now. Let's start from the beginning then. So when you were a kid, what got you into science? So when I was in seventh grade, I started reading books by Richard Feynman and reading a lot of books about nanotechnology and things like this and got really drawn in by quantum mechanics and nanotech. They just both seemed incredible and non-intuitive. Then I realized, well, if I want to understand more physics, I need to understand more math. So, you know, I started getting pretty far ahead in that. And, and really, yeah, I would say from seventh grade on, I was, was really quite focused on science. I wasn't exclusively focused on science. I mean, I was also very interested in history, very interested in economics. Uh, I was a very active and fairly good cellist. But science was, was what, what I was most, most interested in. So the last two years of high school, I went to a public uh, statewide boarding school in the state of Louisiana called the Louisiana School for Math, Science, and the Arts. And, and that was fantastic because... They had a lot of uh, college level courses and even where they didn't have courses, you could do independent studies. So, you know, I was able to do a partial differential equations course as an independent study uh, in high school, which was fantastic. And a ton of programming courses. It's funny, I actually did, you know, learned the vast majority of what I know about programming in high school, <laughs> not, not later. That was a, a really great experience. 
this is a, a shameless plug. So there's a, a foundation that, that supports the school. Uh, so I, I would encourage any, any listeners who are kind of moved by what the school can maybe do to check out the LSMSA uh, foundation. So it's Louisiana School for Math, Science, and the Arts. So the great thing about LSMSA is it provides opportunities for students from across the state that very few of them could possibly have had at their, at their home schools. It really opens doors at, at a critical time in people's lives, right? So a lot of these kids were you know, 15 years old. Now the school accepts uh, sophomores, but it can be especially transformative, right? Louisiana is not typically known as a state with strong educational opportunities, but actually when it comes to requirements for gifted education and then opportunities like this school, um, it actually is pretty exceptional in, in terms of, of services that are mandated. So I Worked pretty hard while I was while I was there. I think senior year, one semester, I took something like thirteen classes, and the other semester, fourteen. And basically, uh, graduated with a ton of college credit. Got accepted to a lot of really good places, but um, I wasn't really thinking too far ahead about the financial aid bit of it. Uh, so I ended up going to to Rice as a good kind of compromise, where it was, you know it was a good school I could go to, and I could graduate without taking on any student loans. And Rice punched and continues to punch above its weight in the nanotech space, which was what, what I was, was most interested in uh, at the time. So actually, somehow I managed to snag the nanotech at rice.edu email address is my personal uh, email when I started <laughs> and majored in chemistry, physics, chemical physics and biochemistry and cell biology, not just because I wanted to stay for four years and, and see if I could do it, but also to get a broad base of, of education. You know, for something like nanoscience, it, it, it's very, very interdisciplinary. And so it's important to understand, you know, the, the, the physics of what you're doing, the chemistry of what you're doing, uh, you know, the, the maybe biological system in which you're applying it and so on. And senior year at Rice, I read The Selfish Gene by Richard Dawkins, which was a phenomenal book. And it really helped me realize Biology isn't just stamp collecting and is increasingly becoming a field that we can understand through the lens of, of information and data and that I didn't need to spend my PhD pipetting, which I had grown to dislike <laughs> through my four years at Rice. I mean, I, I loved kind of the problems I was working on in the lab, but I just did not want to pipette anymore. And I loved computers and always had loved computers. But also while at Rice, I was very busy working a number of jobs on top of school so that by the end of it, I was on the verge of being burnt out, I would say, and figured on a lark, I would apply for the Rhodes Scholarship and the Marshall Scholarship. And if it worked out, then, you know, that would be great. And if not, I was thinking of you know maybe joining the Houston Fire Department or something for a year just to do something totally different. And Wait, the fire department? Yeah, or yeah, I was looking at that or going to work on a, a fishing boat. Wow. I mean, those those are very interesting gap year choices. I, yeah. <laughs> did, you, did you have any EMS or fighter fighting experience beforehand? No, no. Wanted to try it out. That's so interesting. Yeah, just something pretty different than what I had been doing for the last few years. Yeah. Yeah, I think my parents were not 
thrilled with those choices. But, you know, fortunately for them, the Marshall Scholarship worked out. So, and then there was also this NIH Oxford Cambridge program that was still at the time relatively new. And they had a partnership uh, with the Marshall Scholarship. So, you know, you kind of had to put in an independent application and all this. But, you know, I went ahead and did that because I figured it would be, you know, it would make for a more interesting PhD splitting between labs so that basically in the program, you you split your time between a lab at, or at least one lab <laughs> at, at Oxford and at least one lab at NIH. And uh, a number of people had had multiple supervisors. So so, so at Oxford, I worked with, with Chris Ponting, who had been a contributor to the human and mouse genome projects and, and some other big genome projects, and had been doing a lot of work looking at functionality in long non-coding RNAs. There is a project that they had already discussed doing, but didn't really have anyone to, to take it forward. It would be a collaboration between Chris Ponting's lab, Zoltan Molnar's lab, who uh, was an anatomy, is an anatomy professor at St. John's College, Oxford, and Elliot Margulies at NIH, who worked in the genome technology branch and was doing a lot of work on the tech dev side with this new set of so-called uh, next-generation sequencers. They were made originally by Selexa. Selexa was bought out by Illumina. When I was there, everyone was still calling them the, the, the Selexa machines. It was still, still very early days. And you know now there are tools that are fairly standard to do all this stuff for you. But at the time, you were kind of having to write your own your own tools to do most of the steps of what's, what's what's basically automated now, which was nice because you really got to learn the ins and the outs of the technology. I spent a couple of years primarily at Oxford going back to NIH periodically and then and then a year at, at NIH going back to, to Oxford periodically. And when I was at NIH, met Angel, who was to become my wife, as as you know, Grace, because you you have babysat for our our firstborn before. <laughs> yes. So Angel was in medical school at the Uniformed Services University for Health Sciences. So it's basically the, the military medical school. And she was in the first half of med school at the time. So she was based out of Bethesda, Maryland, uh, literally across the street from NIH. You know, if you've lived in the DC area, uh, you'll know that proximity matters because traffic is pretty bad. So my NIH supervisor, Elliot, uh, left NIH to take a job as director as director of scientific research at Illumina Cambridge. So that was kind of my first experience, I guess, working remotely where Elliot was gone. People in the lab started trickling elsewhere. And at that point, there was really no reason to go in anymore. Uh, you know, you might as well work from home or from wherever else you are. I mean... There, there were certainly very nice people at NIH, but you could also get in a bit of trouble. I, I had my internet access cut off uh, for a while once because I had been speaking with my mom on Skype and I forgot to close it before I went into the office one day. And so they detected that Skype was on act, trying to access some port. And I guess it was, you know, banned by NIH policy. So I had my internet cut off and I had no idea why, you know, I was trying to get by without it for a few days. And then finally, one of the uh, IT people from main campus found me and, uh, <laughs> and explained what was going on. But, um, you know, so it's just easier <laughs> not to uh, not to be working from NIH campus. 
Yeah, so I was basically remote for for a while there, and because Angel was moving around every month, because at that at that point she was doing her clinical rotations, and at, at USIS, uh, your clinical rotations are at different uh, military hospitals across the U.S. So you know, I was able to to spend some time with her. We got to spend some time in in Honolulu uh, while she was doing a a rotation at, at Tripler Army Medical Center, where I was writing up my dissertation. So that was that was nice. Basically, you know, during the week she would work, and I'd work on my dissertation, and on the weekends we'd be able to enjoy Hawaii. Basically, I was living out of a suitcase for six months at that point. Then I, I did a, a short course in Okinawa, and then returned to the UK to finish writing up to finish uh, some papers, basically to get on to the next thing. So after finishing up the PhD, I um, you know, flew back to my parents' house where we'd kind of been storing everything. And my, my parents had been watching Angel's cat. We, we got the cat, you know, the cat you know, Lena. So Lena was, uh, she, she's no longer with us now, but uh, um, even at the time she was already, you know, starting to show her age. <laughs> but um, I basically packed my vehicle floor to ceiling and, and had Lena in there and, and Lena realized that she could open and close the automatic windows, which was not great because at one point we had things flying out on the Texas interstate and had to, <laughs> had to go and collect that. And yeah, so I made it to LA. I was originally going to live on a on a sailboat and then some people down at the marina were were concerned about, you know, what the California authorities might think of having the cat, which as it turns out would have been perfectly fine. I mean the, the weather's very nice and so for that reason I got a, a very small moldy uh, apartment close to uh, UCLA campus to live in during the week and did a, a number of projects that, that were pretty interesting. So I inherited a project looking at, at gene expression in the brain in, in autism, which built upon a previous paper they had published. That first paper was in Nature, then our paper was in Nature. And, and I think actually is pretty impactful because it was showing you know these common changes in gene expression in a pretty decent proportion, you know, basically in most people with autism, which is, didn't have to be the case for a psychiatric disorder with, at the time, no known uh, neuropathology. Uh, there, there's a bit more known about that now. And, and certainly there, there was a lot known about the neuropathology of certain syndromic forms and so on. Yeah, I also did some work in, in autism genetics, uh, did some work in a kind of comparative neurotranscriptomics. So following up on the comparative neurotranscriptomic work I'd done in my PhD, but, but here we're looking more across primates. So I was physically at uh, UCLA for a year, and then Angel and I got married halfway through that year, and then she was stationed at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base outside Dayton, Ohio, the following summer. So... Basically, I uh, <laughs> walked into Dan's office and you know told him, "Hey, I'm moving to Ohio, so I can I can uh, keep working remotely, or I can find a new job." So, so I kept working remotely, did that for a year, and then uh, heard again from from Chris from Oxford about a really interesting project that he was getting involved with, where we would be sequencing transcriptomes in single cells of the brain. And this was very new technology at the time. I mean, now everyone's doing it. And, you know, we, we do single-cell projects constantly at the uh, at the CRO. But there was still a lot to figure out at the time. You know, I thought that was really cool because I kind of saw, you know, single-cell sequencing as the future, which was true. <laughs> so I uh, kind of returned uh, to Oxford, but this time remotely. It was also part of a large uh, multinational consortium. So that was pretty interesting you know, we, we, we worked with a lot of people 
in very different disciplines. Uh, you know, they were trying to use these data to model things like protein levels in different cells and so on. It's really interesting, you know, working with them to try to figure out how, uh, how to do that. That was also when I ran out of pages in my uh, passport and had to get, how to get more sewn in. Wow. What a dream to fill a passport. I feel like that should, that's probably on most people's bucket lists. Yeah. There was actually a, a CBP officer in Chicago who like got to know me because I, I kept into, you know, kind of going through his little booth and uh, there was once where I entered the country twice within 10 days or something. And uh, he remembered the conversation we had had the, the, the previous week. That's a way to get to know someone. <laughs> I also learned don't connect in Chicago in winter unless you want to have a pretty reasonable chance of spending the night in Chicago. <laughs> Duly noted. So a couple of years into, into that, I heard from an old friend at UCLA who had uh, started with someone else in the lab at, at UCLA, a company focused on genomics-driven target identification, uh, using a lot of the, the techniques that I'd used in, in my PhD and postdoc. It sounded pretty, pretty intriguing. At first, they were basically seeing if I could you know, move out to the San Francisco Bay Area, and, and the answer to that was definitely not. We were in, you know, still in Ohio at the time. So then they said, well, you know, maybe you can start as a, as a consultant. And so we did that. And before long, I got so heavily involved in things that it made more sense for them to, to bring me on as an employee. So I worked remotely initially in Ohio and, and then in Florida. And that was very interesting. Definitely you know, learned a, a ton about the biotech industry. Learned a lot about AWS. <laughs> so I had uh, never really done any cloud computing before. And of course, now with the CRO, I mean, we use, and a bit bio for that matter, right? We use AWS all the time. But ever since I was a kid, you know, I got really interested in science and I was thinking about what I wanted to do when I grew up. What I was thinking was not, not really that I wanted to be a professor, but I wanted to run a science company. And I didn't, I didn't really know what that meant, you know, but I was thinking, well, you know, science, the company that does science, <laughs> And it turns out that's actually exactly what a CRO is, right? I mean, you're, you're a company that does science. People hire you to do science. Like, how cool is that? And you don't even have to go and write grants and things. They, they come to you with, here's, here's the problem and, and you know, here's the budget and, and you know, go, go figure it out. So it sounds like the best part to me is not having to write grants. Because <laughs> yeah. I've written a few already and I, <laughs> not my favorite thing. The money, the money comes to you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it, yeah, you know, I mean, there, there's, there are obviously hassles and things like that, like there are with any job. But, you know, I was also thinking, okay, you know, my almost entire scientific career had been remote. And uh, certainly at the time, it was looking like that was going to be the case uh, indefinitely. So, you know, I wanted to to get something in place that would be more more robust, where I wouldn't be, you know, worried about, oh, what happens if, you know, this company goes out of business or whatever. So I, you know, basically took some some money we had saved up to put into into this company so that so that we wouldn't need any uh, external investors. You know, that was stressful for the first six to eight months and, until um, you know I, I I didn't have to write checks to the company anymore. So that was <laughs> that was a good a good milestone. And yeah, I mean, we've definitely at the Bioinformatics Zero have grown a lot since then. So as as you know well. And yeah, we've worked with um, several dozen clients worldwide. You know, we work with over over a dozen scientists. 
and we've we've kind of figured out you know basically how to run things how to how to juggle across all these projects make sure that people are doing the things that they know how to do well i mean i found a big part of that is the the opposite of what you may sometimes have happening in very big companies where you know you really have to know the strengths and weaknesses of of every person and you know kind of bring kind of assemble teams for projects in a way that reflects that yeah thanks so much for talking with me today grant allowing me to interview you. Uh, this has been really, I've learned a lot about you. Well, thank you for doing this. Certainly you've spent more time kind of working on the podcast than anyone. Now you're getting a titled role. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So if you guys liked this episode, please rate us wherever you listen to your podcasts and please give us feedback. We'd love to hear from you at podcasts at bioinformaticscro.com. 